Boy kneels at the foot of the bed, droops on the little hand's little gold head. Hush, hush, whisper, who dares? Christopher Robin is saying his prayers. God bless mummy. I know that's right. Wasn't it fun in the bath tonight? The cold so cold and the hot so hot. Oh, God bless daddy. I quite forgot. Oh, thank you God for a lovely day. And what was the other I had to say? I said bless daddy. So what can it be? Oh, now I remember it. God bless me. I won't ask you this morning whether you've ever prayed that prayer. There is a certain cuteness to it. It's the sort of prayer we would come to expect from the lips of a young child. And perhaps of the variety that we would certainly permit from a very young Christian. Nevertheless, it would be most concerning, would it not, to discover a mature Christian praying nothing more than prayers of the Christopher Robin variety. Granted, we always approach God with a childlike faith. But that is quite different and no excuse for a childish faith. One where we refuse to mature in every area of our lives, including our prayer lives. So, let me give you a test this morning to see how things are growing in your prayer life. When you say to someone, I've been praying for you. Or when you say, as a promise, I'm going to pray for you this week. Or perhaps best of all, when you say, let's pray. What do you pray? And does your prayer bear similarity to the sorts of prayers that we find in Scripture, where there are literally hundreds of prayers written down as examples for us. This morning we consider one of these prayers. And in doing so, we have the opportunity to listen over the shoulder, as it were, to a mature Christian as they pray. The man's name is Paul. And he is praying for his children. Not his physical descendants, but some who had come to faith in Christ through his preaching in a little town called Philippi. So, as we continue our series in Philippians this morning, Shining Like Stars, let me invite you to listen and learn from what Paul prays. As he reports to the Philippian believers, I've been praying for you. And you'll find the reading once again on page 1178 in the Pew Bibles, Philippians 1, 9 to 11. And let's pay close attention to what Paul prays. And this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that you may be able to discern what is best. And may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness 
that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And as the translation suggests, this prayer is just one long single sentence in the original language. And it's a remarkable prayer. Not just remarkable for its content, but remarkable that Paul feels the need to even pray it. If you were here a few weeks ago, you may remember what Paul has already said, his confidence. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Paul has a supreme confidence that what God has started in them, so he will finish. So, if this is the case, as David was asking, then why pray? Why pray for our own maturity and for the growing maturity of others? Sinclair Ferguson comments, Human logic might reason at this point. If God has begun and will complete his work in us, then we are relieved of any responsibility. With such an assurance of heart, Paul could surely relax his prayers. But biblical and spiritual logic is more reliable than such reasoning. Our tendency is to say, if God does the work, we have nothing to do. Paul's logic is the reverse. Because God is at work, we have a responsibility to respond to his work. And Paul's response is to pray. Now, he's already said in verse 3 that the Philippians are in his mind. He thanks God every time he remembers them. He added to that in verse 7 and 8 that the Philippians occupy a place in his heart. Verse 8, I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. But now Paul completes his commitment to them by spelling out the third detail of his fellowship. The Philippians are in his prayers. So, what does Paul pray for them? Well, in a word, maturity. But for the longer answer, as you sometimes have to give in examinations, we can discern at least three steps in Paul's prayer. And we'll see how each of these builds on the previous. It's a progressive prayer. So, firstly, Paul prays for the believers in Philippi for a love that grows more and more. Just think about it. Paul could have prayed for any number of things for these believers. But his top priority, his main concern is their love. How interesting that in the New Testament, so frequently, it is love, or the lack of it, that is seen as the problem or solution, depending on the situation. Now, of course, the love he's thinking of is not the kind of love we may have in mind. This love involves self-sacrifice. It concerns seeking another's positive good at one's own cost. It's a love that is clearly seen in the one who embodies love and defines love, God himself. As John writes in his epistle, God is 
love. The nature of God is the nature of love. And God's love is not some hidden quality. Rather, the invisible God has revealed His love to the world by giving His Son for the world. As Paul writes in Romans, Peter referred to this, God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But even that isn't the end of the story, the love story. Because, here's another amazing thing, when someone becomes a Christian, God pours His love into their hearts by the Holy Spirit. Which is why all believers are expected to practice love. Loving God and loving others. We are not being asked to do something out with our ability. All that said, however, Paul is not one to rest on his laurels. No, he doesn't want the Philippians merely to own this love, to possess it, or even just to practice it. He wants their love to abound, to increase. Abounding means that the existing standards, in this case the standard of love and rules, are transcended. And what was comparable becomes incomparable. It's like someone moving from bankruptcy to millionaire status overnight. And then taking the bother to compare the bank statements before and after. There's no comparison between the two. And Paul is praying that the love they will have will be not with comparing to the love they had before. Now, of course, Paul isn't accusing the Philippians of being loveless. We've already said that every Christian possesses love. The fact that he prays that their love will abound more and more suggests that they already have it. But, we learn an important lesson that they and we are always in need of more increasing love. We see some reasons for this in the letter itself. As we progress in the next few weeks through Philippians, we'll see some of the problems that they faced as a church. And in particular, there were threats to their unity that came through clashes of personality and temperament in the congregation. And Paul's remedy is not simply to write to them and give them a ticking off. It is to pray that their love will abound more and more and cover over a multitude of wrongs. However, there is also another reason that Paul prays which is far less immediate. Look at what he says in verse 10. He prays that their love will increase in light of the day of Christ. You see, there is a day coming when Jesus will return to earth where he will bring our lives under the spotlight of his scrutiny. And Paul wants love to be the transparent feature of the Philippians' lives. The thing that really stands out. It was interesting to read this week that Time magazine uh, was running as its front cover, its main article for this month, the 25 most influential evangelicals in America. It's a bit of a mouthful title, 
but it is an intriguing read. And many of the names on the list, I'm sure, would be well known to most of you. And of course, Time magazine had its own particular spin and the points it was trying to make. Nevertheless, I was certainly sobered by some of the distinguishing features that Time picked out regarding these individuals. For instance, one man was praised for his literary empire. Another is congratulated. He's back in power politics. When he gets on the bandwagon, things are likely to move. While of yet another well-known evangelical, it commented, pioneering mass appeal. Where do pastors go to learn how to make a stirring performance for their flock? Time asks. There is an oracle of the presenter's art, and his name is, well, you can buy the article or guess. It raised a question in my mind. What are we known for as individuals and as a church? What will be our legacy? In what way are we conspicuous for Jesus Christ? Is it in love? Of a more old-fashioned evangelical, a man named George Whitfield, you've never read his biography, he lived an amazing life, I suggest you do that. John Wesley, a friend of earlier years, wrote after his death, he had a heart susceptible of the most generous and tender friendship. I have frequently thought that this, of all others, was the distinguishing part of his character. How few have we known of so kind a temper, of such large and flowing affections? This shone in his very countenance and continually breathed in his words, whether in public or private. Was it not this which, quick as lightning, flew from heart to heart, which gave that lift to his sermons, his conversations, his letters? So here is the question. Is our love our conspicuous feature? And is our love growing more and more? Both personally, in our individual walk with Christ, and collectively, as a church fellowship? Or am I so complacent that I really don't feel the need to pray this prayer? Don Carson warns us, could it be that we have experienced little because we have asked for little? Is our unfruitfulness proportionate to our prayerlessness? I hope we will praise Paul praise. Not only for a love that is growing, but building on that for a love that discerns what is best. Some years ago, a poem was written by a gentleman named William Morris. The poem was titled, Love is Enough. And someone was said to have reviewed the poem with the briefest of comments, it isn't. And I think Paul would have agreed with that. That love isn't enough if it comes on its own. It must have a companion called discernment. William Barclay writes, Love is always sensitive to the heart and mind 
of the one it loves. If it blindingly and blunderingly hurts the feelings of the one it claims to love, it is not love at all. And while Paul does not wish to curtail the Philippians' love, he does want it to be controlled. The picture that I have in my mind here is of river banks that keep the flow of the river in check. On one side, the bank that Paul speaks of is knowledge. Now, Paul doesn't mean general knowledge here. He isn't saying that they should take an encyclopedia and digest it from end to end. No, the knowledge he has in mind is what we might call religious knowledge. Whenever this word knowledge is used in the New Testament, it always describes personal and spiritual knowledge. Especially that kind when we come to know God in a personal relationship. And Paul's prayer is that their abounding love, which comes from God, will be informed by knowledge which they have learned of God. So that they will increasingly love in appropriate and godly ways. So, for instance, when it comes to loving persons of the opposite sex, what they know of God through his word, the Bible, and prayer, will constrain them to love within the boundaries of what God says is appropriate. They should not love in ways that God has deemed unacceptable, no matter what anyone else may say. Yet this knowledge doesn't just come on its own either. Paul adds that love should abound in depth of insight. Now, this other riverbank is slightly different. It describes a moral understanding based on experience. This is, in fact, the only time this word insight is used in the whole of the New Testament. But if you look in the Old Testament, you will find this word insight used liberally in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, you may be aware, is a book full of practical, down-to-earth wisdom. And so one commentator says that tact might be a good translation of what Paul's speaking of. This is practical, experiential, biblically informed wisdom. As I was thinking of this, don't want to embarrass anybody, I couldn't help but thinking about Bill and Eilish and Peter in the pastoral team, who their whole job is really about bringing God's love to bear in a canny, in a practical way in people's lives. And the result, says Paul, the end of the sum, when you have abounding love, channeled through knowledge and insight, he says, then you have discernment. Then you will be able to discern what is best. Now, what does Paul mean by discerning what is best? Well, discern literally means to test something. It was a word used of testing money to see whether it was genuine or counterfeit. And best means superior in quality. Something which excels everything else. And so when we put these together, we see that Paul is speaking of an increasing ability to distinguish between the morally good and the morally bad, 
and perhaps even more trickily, to separate the best from the rest. Now let me give you some illustrations of the latter. Okay, here's a few questions to answer in your own mind. How many hours of television should a Christian watch in a given evening or week? How many minutes a day should a Christian set aside purely devoted to reading the Bible and prayer? How many church commitments should we take on? And in relation, how much time should you mark out for your family, for your work, for your leisure, and indeed for your non-Christian friends? I would suggest that none of these questions can be answered on the basis of mere law. But all of them can be met with a response on the basis of an increasingly discerning love. You see, the idea is that as you develop in loving, wise maturity, through reading scripture and prayer and gaining experience of what pleases God, more and more you will make the right kinds of choices, the choices you know will please God. And there's a great result to this, says Paul, in terms of our own holiness, our sanctification. For there will be an increasing purity in our inner life. And outwardly, we will be increasingly blameless. Blameless has the idea not only of the fact that we ourselves are personally blameless, but also it has the idea of giving no offence, not causing another person to stumble. You see, the mature Christian becomes more able to judge between what is legitimate for themselves and what is helpful for others. And of course, it's all in view of the day of Christ, the day of God's scrutiny. So, I ask you this morning, is your love coupled with discernment? My son, Glenn, is a very loving young toddler. He's just a year and a half old. He's not aware yet of what it means to be macho. And I hope he never learns that because he still gives his dad kisses and cuddles. However, Glenn still lacks wisdom. And however well-intentioned he may be, he doesn't know yet, for example, that to touch a roasting hot oven is bad news. Does our love come with discernment? Does it come with tact, sensitivity, biblically informed insight? Or is there still a great deal of naivety? If so, then we can pray the prayer that Paul prays. And with a love that is increasingly growing and increasingly wise, Paul says there is only one possible outcome, which is what he finally prays for and concludes with. A love that glorifies God. Paul, as he comes to the conclusion of his prayer, is not sort of winding up. You know, sometimes where you're running out of things to pray for. Rather, Paul is heading to the very summit of what his prayer is ultimately about. He is heading up 
And he concludes that an abounding love, that is also a discerning love, should lead to a fruitful love. What he calls the fruit of righteousness. Now, the idea of this fruit is very simply to live a life that is pleasing to God, which bears fruit. You could say, living in a way that God deems to be right. And that may appear to you very human-centered, very human-focused. I mean, it seems as if Paul is ending with what we do, our fruit, our insight, our love. However, just when we get that feeling, Paul has a crucial addition. Did you notice the three words? This fruit comes through Jesus Christ. And those three words turn the focus of the prayer upside down, or indeed right side up. For it means that all the love, and all the wisdom, and all the fruit comes from God, through Christ. So that everything might be to the glory and praise of God. And that too raises a fundamental question. Whose reputation do I live for? And do I live to glorify God or for some other glory? Let me borrow an illustration from an American pastor, a man named John Piper. He says, imagine going for a trip to the Grand Canyon. It's 277 miles long, up to 18 miles wide and more than one and a half thousand foot deep in some places. You finally get there, and when you eventually arrive at the rim, there is a breathtaking view before you. But, instead of gazing at the view, you turn around a full 180 degrees, and you take out a little bucket and spade that you've brought with you. And there you proceed to dig a little hole of your own in the ground. And then having finished it, you sit down and gaze for a while at your miniature creation. How sad, he says, that is exactly what most people do in relation to God's glory. Instead of gazing at the grandeur, the enormous depth of God's love, people turn away. They dig their own little trough and worship it. But if you are a Christian, then your whole life, all your prayers should be aiming for this ultimate end. Just a few words to conclude. Let's look back to the beginning of Paul's prayer to a few words that we easily skip over at the start of verse 9 where Paul says and this is my prayer here we find the most obvious but perhaps the most significant point that Paul makes Don Carson once again comments the point to stress is that what he is doing that is Paul is praying He is not simply exhorting people to be better. 
still less berating fellow believers. What he is doing is praying for revival. And so the challenge for us this morning is to pray. Not merely, merely to learn the mechanics of prayer, and even about the content of prayer, but to get down to prayer. And as we do, to ask ourselves the question, in relation to this passage, do I pray this kind of prayer? If you've never prayed anything quite like this, then now would be a good time to start. And there are many other similar prayers throughout Scripture that would be worth your scrutiny. But pray this prayer. Pray it for the chapel, this church. Pray it for the leadership in all its different forms. Pray for every member. Pray it for your friends who are Christians. And ask others to pray it for you. Don't just accept the fact that people are praying. Tell them what to pray. And I'm sure if we do that, much will change in this church and in our lives. But, and I finish with this, there are some people to whom this prayer has sadly no direct relevance. So I finish by asking you this morning another question. Can I pray this prayer for you? You see, it's impossible to pray this prayer for someone who has not yet first received the love of God into their lives. If there is no seed in the plant pot, then no matter how much you water it, nothing will grow. You can pray over it. Nothing will happen. Yet here's the good news, if that is you. While I can't pray this prayer for you, you can pray another prayer for yourself. It's the most significant prayer you will ever pray. It's got two points in it. The first point is repentance. Where you admit your selfish way of life without God, and you turn to God to live for Him. Second point is faith. Where you trust God and His Son Jesus, and His death, which can save you from the sentence due because of your rebellion. If you pray that today, then just the same as if you pray Paul's prayer in Philippians 9, 1, 9-11, I can say with confidence to you, that prayer would be a prayer worth praying. Let's pray.